Open finance could define the future of financial services. That's why 11FS and Plaid have joined forces to create a report to explore it in greater depth. In the report, we scrutinise the lessons learned from open banking, outline key policy considerations for its implementation, and consider its impact on financial service providers and the potential benefits to consumers. You can download the report for free now at bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. That's bit.ly forward slash O-P-E-N-F-I-N-A-N-C-E 2020, all lowercase. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 68 of InsureTech Insider. Um, Though things are looking up in some places, we are still recording remotely. Uh, This gives us an opportunity to speak to people from all around the world and we'd really love your suggestions on as diverse a range of people as possible that we could get on the show to hear from all aspects of the industry. Do get in contact by emailing podcasts11fs.com with your suggestions of people we should chat to. So today we're talking about life insurance under COVID-19. Many parts of the insurance industry have had to change their offerings and products as a result of the virus, and life is no different. As always, I'm not alone, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Nigel Walsh. How are you doing, Nigel? I'm very well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this because this is an interesting area, I think. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, We are joined by two amazing guests. First up, we have Jonathan Rumer, co-founder of ULife. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jonathan. Uh, First of all, whereabouts are you? Are you actually in an office or is that just a background? That's that's my virtual background of of the ULife office for for those that that won't be seeing the the, the video (laughs) of this. Um, I was just missing it. We're normally based in Shoreditch and and for the last few months have been in in the loft at the house. So at least uh, I got the virtual background of the office. That's, you know, I just have to ask because we have guests, as I said, from all around the world on and we've had people sitting in offices in Sweden, popping out to get coffee, surrounded by people. You know, it's it's, it's a very strange setup, depending on where you are in the world. Um, can you start off by just telling us a quick bit about you life, actually? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, I'll just say big shout out to Nigel for saying life insurance is, is, is interesting because thank you. We don't hear that too too often, but but I tend to agree. Uh, yeah, and so I'm one of the co-founders of ULife, and at ULife we're on a mission to protect lives, to reward living, and to inspire life. Um, we are a digital life insurance business that's transforming old-fashioned employee benefits into something that is life-enhancing and providing life-enhancing experiences. Uh, so we're very privileged to now have several thousand people as as members, and this month should be uh, crossing about two billion two billion pounds worth of cover. So. Yeah, just helping people to, to to live and not just waiting for them to to die. Brilliant. Well, um, well, no, not brilliant. The people aren't waiting for people to die. But thank you for the thank you for the wonderful summary um, <laughs> and for giving us a great picture of what you life does. Um, we're also joined today by Colleen Wells, Vice President of Product Strategy at Sapiens. How are you today, Colleen? And indeed, where are you? Anywhere exciting? Sarah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. I'm in uh, north of Boston, Massachusetts. Home, home, where we've been for <laughs> months now. <laughs> are, are you still in? Lo- are you still in lockdown? You're still not going into the office where you are. No, still in lockdown. Yeah. Oh, never mind. Soon, soon, perhaps. I know. I know. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about Sapiens, please? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Sapiens is a leading global provider of software solutions for the 
the life insurance industry, uh, for um, property and casualty, for reinsurance, finance and compliance, and the work comp market as well. Uh, We offer digital insurance software solutions for all of those verticals. We have been really focusing on providing our customers with a one-stop shop solution for all of their insurance needs. We have over 450 customers across our verticals worldwide, um, and we have over 35 years of success in the industry. Brilliant. That's quite a track record. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Indeed, thank you to both of you. Uh, Let's get on with the show. So let's set the scene, as always, by talking about some stats. So. Only 50% of households in the UK with mortgages have life insurance. Uh, 8.5 million people in the UK are without life insurance as of the 27th of April this year, that's 2020. Um, And on the other side of the pond, almost 40% of Americans will leave their families in financial distress when they die. Uh, so not not great numbers to be uh, starting off with there. Um, but let's start with, I know we have covered life insurance in the podcast before, but let's let's have a quick overview of what a life insurance policy typically covers. I think people sort of think life insurance and think, oh, I, I know what that is. It insures, it insures me in case, you know, I die. But obviously, that's not quite that simple. So um, what does it typically cover? And perhaps what do people get wrong about it? Or what do, do people commonly get wrong about it? You know, those who don't work in the industry. Jonathan, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, life insurance, Sarah, actually is that simple. It is money when you die. That that really is the high level thing. I think that the you know one of the reasons why there there is uh, such a lack of uh, or you know why the statistics are so grim. What you were talking about, you know, the 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 life insurance industry they talk around having a a gap of about three trillion pounds in terms of the cover that people actually need and what they have. Um, and that is a really, really, really big number. You know, to, to put it in perspective, I, I think it's something like if I give you a pound every second, starting now, it would take ten thousand years to get to three trillion. It's it's ridiculously how, how you know high the number. Um, I think that there's a few reasons why you know why that is. One of them is to do with fear. Life insurance is complicated in that you you have to fill out a form and it goes into a black box and you don't know how it's priced. Uh, so people naturally fear what they don't understand. Um, and also, it's a subject people don't want to talk about. We all we all think that we're you know we're going to live forever, even with the, with the pandemic and everything. We still think we're going to be the ones who survive forever. So we don't want to think about it, and we fear it. So therefore, people ignore it. Um, so I think that's one of the main reasons is that it's it's why it has to be sold is people just don't want to think about it. That's really interesting. So actually, it is as simple as it sounds. It's just it's kind of a, a psychological block, I suppose, in people purchasing it. Yeah, I think, you know, the products can become more complicated once you start to look in it and then you start to think, okay, what level of cover do I need? Um, You know, how long do I need it for? But those really are the secondary things that come after you've made that decision. Okay, I need some form of cover. I need some money when I die. Is the word need an interesting word to use, though? Because I think, um, isn't it considered a luxury item for some? I mean, it's not your, not everyone has it because it's it's not exactly seen as a necessity. I mean, you know, obviously everybody has different circumstances, but I, I, th- I think there's very few people in, in the UK who could say, I don't need any life insurance. You know, the vast majority of people have somebody who's financially dependent on them, if, they, if, they, if they're working at least, or they have some form of debt that, you know, if God forbid they were to die and the income were to dry up, you know, th- there'd be a problem. And, you know, one of, one of the issues has been that exactly what you're talking about, people have sold based on fear for so long. It's like, 
well, what happens if you die? What happens if you die? And no one likes to be sold based on, on, on fear. And, you know, that's something we, we've tried to change is to talk around the, the love and improving life and, you know, why you should do these things from a positive perspective. Uh, but the vast majority of people do need some form of cover, not necessarily a lot, even if it's just 3,000 pounds to cover like a fancy funeral, if you want. Um, but you do need it. Colleen, how about you? Yeah, and I think I think Jonathan's right. I think it's that whole fear because when do you when do you approach the topic and when is the right time to start thinking about it um, and and acting upon it? And I think we have a tendency to sort of look at mortality in a certain way, and so we put it off and put it off. And I think that's why you're seeing some of those numbers. And um, I th- I think that's going to change. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but. Um, I see the statistics and uh, consumers thinking about it more and more, especially given the pandemic and COVID-19 and all those things that have happened today. Um, The other thing that I think is really interesting, just when you think about insurance, um, you know, it is it is simple in terms of the what you're getting out of it. But when you ask the question to consumers, what does it cover? What do you have? There's uh, an, an automatic reaction in terms of not being able to answer that and, and automatically defaulting, let me ask my broker. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's almost like there's just a, such a lack of understanding um, that people can't get past that. I don't know if you were going to jump in there, Nigel. You looked like you were... You were gonna. No, I, I, I was I was nodding away, and I think the uh, Colleen, the the comment you made about broker is interesting because actually, whilst a lot of the stuff in the UK has moved away from broker, this is probably one of the few areas that still kind of attached to someone to give you that advice in the first instance. And actually, whilst we can all go and buy a commodity products like motor, home, or whatever else, Actually, having the confidence to go, you, you've bought your first house together, or whatever it might be, or you've got your first child, which is usually the event that kickstarts the oh god, if I go, what happens to my partner and, and kids? Actually, having the confidence or comfort of speaking to a broker or an intermediary in this instance feels like it's higher. I don't know what your experience of that is, guys. Is that is that correct still, or is that changing as well? I find that it's that's still correct. Brokers historically um, have had those long-term relationships with customers. They really understand uh, what the customer needs are. They understand, um, you know, the financial situation of the customers. So the the customers and the insureds are having expectations that a broker is going to be able to help them. Um, uh, understand what the coverage is that they need and provide a product to match uh, what what they need from a life insurance perspective. If, if that's right or wrong, I can't answer that. But for sure, the necessity and that relationship is very strong on the life insurance side from a broker perspective. Yeah, I mean, from, from what we've seen, I mean, we're, we're a B2B business predominantly selling group life insurance and group risk products. Um, but we obviously kind of keep aware of what's going on the direct-to-consumer side as well. Um, in life insurance, it still is predominantly an intermediated market. Um, a lot of the products are actually commodities that are out there. They are very similar. You'll un- go through the same underwriting questions, regardless of whether you go through a broker or, or you do it online on your own. Um, when somebody has a complicated situation, obviously brokers and things can come in and, and add a lot of value when they can tell you which companies to speak to who can 
you know, help with certain spe- uh, certain specific situations. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what a lot of it comes down to, again, is that because people fear it, they don't trust themselves to do it. So I think that, you know, there's that great old expression, you know, no one got fired for buying IBM. It's the same type of thing is that people use brokers a lot of the time because they want to outsource their kind of fear, their, their liability to somebody else to say, okay, it's okay. And, you know, that's, that's an absolutely fair thing to do. So, um, so just moving on a little bit from from sort of how how the product is, is is typically sold, and just one more thing I wanted to sort of touch on here is um is there you know other than not wanting to think about their own mortality, which um <laughs> is a perfectly valid reason not to want to look into life insurance, or indeed imagining the worst case scenario if you're a parent imagining you know an uncertain or bad future for your child, I can imagine I don't have children, but I can imagine is equally horrifying a prospect. Um, but what else might put people off? So you know, what is there involved in buying life insurance? Is it like health insurance? Do I have to have a medical or other? Is it kind of a long kind of complex process? I might, you know, drop off in the middle of are there other things that sort of might be uh, other factors driving this kind of low take up of the products? Yeah. So I think there are several things that stop people from from engaging with life insurance. And uh, th- there's an interesting model that we follow in within our product. And it's it's called the Fogg behavior model by an incredible professional named BJ Fogg. And any behavior for any behavior, any action to happen, people have to do three things or have three things. There needs to be motivation, so they need to want to do it. Uh, it needs to be accessible. It needs to be easy to do. And there needs to be a trigger. There needs to be something that says, okay, you, you should do this. So behavior is equal to motivation, accessibility, and trigger. So if you look at the, those three things, people are generally not motivated to buy insurance because they fear it, as we've spoken about. The accessibility, I think, is it's not always easy to do because there's a lot of questions that get asked. And some of those questions are medically complicated and you may have to go for a medical. Although I think when I last look at the statistics, I think 80 to 85% of people can go through without actually having any form of medical. And then you've got the triggers, which as Nigel mentioned, are usually things like external factors, like uh, you know, you've bought a house or you've had a child. So you need all three of those things are really against the life insurance industry. So motivation's low, it's not perceived to be easy, and there's not frequent triggers. So that's why the behavior doesn't happen very often. Did you want to add to anything to that, Colleen? Or yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, I, I I definitely agree with what Jonathan said. I think also it is difficult to obtain. So um, there's not a lot of online um, availability, as we've talked about, the majority is through brokers. Um, Additionally, there's a lot, it's a huge process, right? There's a big underwriting process around it. And there's a lot of evidence that needs to be provided, medical tests, historical records, blood work. um, And so that makes it even more challenging. It's, it's almost, it's, it's the insurance that you know you need, but you just can't get yourself to to where you where you need to be in order to obtain it because we make it so hard. Well, I, th- I think if I if I say if I can jump in with a few comments for you on this one, the um, isn't it back to the exclusions as well though? I mean, don't you don't people think about it too late? Which is I think where Sarah was starting to get to on, on one of the questions in terms of you know if I'm obese or I have a heart condition or I need a medical. And different in different life insurance policies um, underwrite at different stages of the journey, don't they? Because you can almost buy it up front for a term or a fixed amount or fixed period with no underwriting, then underwrite slightly later on or underwrite at point of purchase. 
Yeah, so I think, I mean, Nigel, you're right. We do see a lot of people are only triggered when it, when they've had a scare or something. And then unfortunately, it is it is often too late because now you've got a pre-existing you know, condition which makes your mortality, unfortunately, a lot higher. And, and insurers ultimately are in, in, you know, in, in, a, in it to make some money. And if, if there's a really big chance of somebody dying or, or getting an illness, then they're not going to want to cover that risk. So it's one of those things that when you're younger and healthier, you don't necessarily want it, but that's the best time to get it because you're not going to have underwriting. It's going to cost a lot less and you can fix it for a long time in, in the future. Um, and yeah, I think the industry has a, a lot of responsibility to come along and, and hopefully help educate people and make it easier earlier in people's lives before those things happen. It's it's like so many things, you know, the one that immediately springs to mind is investing and pensions, which are, are not a million miles away from life insurance. It's both sort of uh, thinking about the future. Um, I just want to sort of bring us on from that um, to, to talk a little bit about, we, I don't feel like we can talk about life insurance without dipping into kind of what impact COVID-19 has had on the industry. Um, and perhaps, you know, you know, people who are trying to, to, to claim on, on their life insurance policies as a result of the pandemic. So, um, uh, Colleen, let's, let's start with you. Um, do, do most life insurance policies cover death by COVID-19? Like, is this something that typical policies will cover? Because just as for context, we've seen a lot of uh, small businesses find their insurers say, oh, well, it covers everything but pandemic. <laughs> so, it, you know, is that the case for life insurance? Yeah, it, it's been a hot topic in the the PNC industry among small businesses, um, that could be a whole new, another podcast. <laughs> um, it, it is covered. There, there is coverage um, on a life insurance policy. If you currently have a policy and you are honest during your application process, you're covered. So it really is as simple as that then. So that, that that's a, a great relief for a lot of people, I imagine. I mean, are there any other factors that might invalidate your life insurance when we're talking about the pandemic? You know, I, for example, I traveled to India recently and they've got, you know, a huge outbreak at the moment. Would any of that, would those factors come into play or, or really it is as simple as you, as, it, as you make it sound? So I think it's as, as simple as that. As long as you were honest on your application, if I asked any travel questions um, early on and you disclosed all the information, if you knew it, um, you, there's coverage. I mean, I think where the change is going to be is, you know, if you're during the application process now, um, it might be m more difficult um, to obtain the insurance. Um, and going forward, there are there's a lot of chatter in terms of excluding pandemics and COVID from, from policies. So you have to be careful for that um, going forward. So it sounds like for the, for the moment, you know, if, if, you, if you have uh, bought your life insurance policy before now, then then you're golden, as it were. <laughs> be careful with the language we use when we talk yeah. about this topic. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean from a purely objective perspective. But if you're trying to buy it now, it might be slightly more difficult. Um, do we? Has anybody got any stats on whether we've, we've seen a surge on, on life insurance claims? Because, again, this is a very morbid question, but um, we've seen a surge in claims in a lot of other areas of insurance off the back of COVID-19. We mentioned small businesses. That's obviously one. Um, obviously, we've seen a huge number of people very sadly die as a result of, of COVID-19 or associated complications. From, again, an objective perspective, is the life insurance industry struggling as much as perhaps the PNC industry is with trying to handle either the volume of claims or the backlog of claims? And again, I, I am taking this down the, the, the business objective route, though I, I fully understand there are other, other questions here. Um, you know, in the UK, I think that the last figures I saw, there was an, in excess of 60,000 excess deaths, unfortunately, this, you know, this year so far. Um, from what I've seen, you know, the majority of those sadly were, were already, 
you know, quite old and above pensionable age and things like that. So that population is, is a, an underinsured population. So a lot of those people wouldn't, wouldn't have had cover because their financial dependencies are, are, are no longer. So I think the pure volume of, of claims, while it would have increased, hasn't, you know, has not pushed it to any, any, any real strain. Um, life insurance is usually a relatively simple, you know, claim to process. Um, usually quite easy in that once you've got a, a death certificate and you've got the, the proof they paid out quite quickly. Um, so I don't believe it's put a strain on the on the administration of of the life companies at all. That's um, that's I suppose reassuring in one way for, from a business perspective, as I said, and also I imagine for those people who are in that horrible situation where they are having to claim, being able to get access to those funds as quickly as they need them without any long drawn out process would be hugely important because trying to claim on your insurance is always stressful nobody ever you never claim on your insurance because something's gone right do you you always claim on your insurance because something has gone wrong but if we're talking about somebody close to you dying then that's that's incredibly reassuring to hear that people are, are still getting the, the support that they that they need and they expect in the time frame they do um to, to sort of bring us back, we we'll stay with the topic of COVID-19, but kind of uh, to, to take us on to the idea that we've already talked about why people don't buy life insurance. Do we think that the pandemic is going to result in more people buying life insurance or less people buying life insurance? Because are we, we're being forced to confront our own mortality now, much as we may or may not like it. Um but that that could, you know, make people think, oh, God, well, life insurance, I really need to get that now. Or oh my God, I don't want to think about it, but also I don't have the money anymore. So I don't, I no longer have the resources because I've lost my job or my spouse has lost their job or, you know, a, a lot of people are struggling economically. Does anybody have any insight onto A, what might have already happened or B, what, which way they think this will go? Yeah. So, so we've done um, a few surveys with one of our partners, Lydico, and I think COVID-19 has people thinking about mortality. I mean, it's scary. So there's just there's no way that you can you can avoid that. And really more so if you've been directly impacted, like, you know, somebody or someone in your family um, was sick, even if they didn't, even if there was no loss. Right. Um, so we did a survey um, of over a thousand consumers and um, asked a lot of different insurance questions, related questions. And one of the interesting things from a feedback perspective that we got was that customers were willing to cut back on every financial expense they had with the exception of insurance. So to me, that's a huge opportunity for, for the life insurance industry and for, for you know, the other insurance industries as, as well. Um, Additionally, um, those who had been directly impacted by the pandemic were two and a half times more likely to increase their insurance coverage or to obtain new coverage. So um, those are people are thinking about it. I mean, I, I, I don't think we've seen it yet, but I, I, I can see the future in terms of a, a large increase. Jonathan, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, so one of the, the things um, we, we've spoken about quite a lot recently and we've seen a lot is income protection, which is a type of life insurance where it pays out based on your salary or a fixed amount monthly to replace an income while you're incapacitated. So it's not a death-based cover. It's a, it's a you know, you can't work, you're, you're an ill-based cover. Um, and income protection is, is a product that is becoming a lot more prominent recently, you know, given things like furloughs and given things like people, you know, are, are losing their jobs. So it is a, a very much more attractive product these days and one that I think a lot of people just assume is really expensive. Um, it is more expensive than a standard life insurance product, but I think the value of it has become a lot more clear these days um, that having an income replacement product 
that gives you protection against what you actually would be earning and therefore hopefully your expenses if you're managing it somewhat um, is definitely becoming a, a much more um, valued product. Do we think on, on the message of expenses, do we think that life insurance will become more expensive as a result of COVID-19? Again, this is just, you know, I've had a lot of conversations. Unfortunately, a lot of my podcasts have been about the impact of COVID-19 lately. And, and for a lot of industries, particularly looking at, you know, small business insurance, just to go back to your point earlier, Colleen, that, that will go up in price. It, we, we already, we've already seen that. It's already started to. Do you think life insurance will be affected in the same way? Or will it be more that you're paying extra to have that pandemic clause in there? You know, you mentioned, Colleen, that some, we're already talking about, are we going to include it and we're not going to include it? Um, is that is that another factor we should be considering? So you know, in, in actuarial, when we look as actuaries at you know at pricing for life insurance, we do it over a very long period of time because people own policies for five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty years. So what we've seen over the last two or three months is just a way too short a period to you know to understand and to see what happens with the long term you know longevity. We've got sixty thousand excess deaths in in the UK of what we've seen so far. Um, however. Uh, you know, we don't know what would have happened with those people, you know, in, 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 in the long term. So it's just too soon to, to tell at all. And uh, yeah, got to wait, wait to see and wait to see the data over the next five years and, and 10 years to see what, what underlying longevity and mortality trends have come because of it. Nigel, you were going to jump in there and I, I spoke over you. Did you have something you no, wanted no, to add? I, I, I think actually, first and foremost, we should call uh, Jonathan out and say, what's, what is excess deaths, right? You've used that phrase twice. And I think people, um, is it Stuart Day, actually by day online, Stuart McDonald, a really good guy online if you want to follow him on Twitter, um, uses the term and, and calls out. Do you want to explain the excess deaths and, and not? Sure. So this doesn't come from me being an actuary. This comes from me being on Twitter all the day and seeing what's coming <laughs> by the ONS and uh, you know, the, uh, Public Health England and everyone. And it's, it's obviously a term that we've become a little bit more familiar with over the last few months with the pandemic. But the excess deaths is looking at how many people have died in, in, in 2020 compared to the average of the previous five years. So if you look at the average number of people who passed away in the last five years and compare it to what's at, happened this year, at this point, there's been you know roughly 60,000 people dying more than we would have expected. So that's what we're saying the, is the excess deaths. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. And then um, to, to, to your questions here around pricing, uh, again, it, it, if you look at the cycles in insurance, general insurance is usually three to seven years in terms of the industry cycles. For life insurance, it's probably about 30 to 40. So there is generally a lifetime uh, which means things just take a much slower period to, to, to catch on and do stuff. That said, there has been an influx and there is now more and more in short techs or new entrants to this market. Obviously, you life in, in, in the room, but you had uh, Dead Happy on the, uh, on the podcast back in January. Uh, Bequest is about to launch um, in the UK, coming out of Founders Factory. So there is actually quite an exciting um, uptick in the number of people coming into this after they've done all the easier stuff like home and motor and pet and whatever else, or more more of the known stuff. So um, it's quite it's quite exciting to see, and I think the COVID nineteen situation for me at least has heightened people's awareness and interest in doing this. If you look at those individual surveys. All right. Well, on that um, reasonably positive note, we're going to take a quick break. Just before we continue, I'd like to tell you about some of our other shows. 
Are you switching up your morning routine now we're all social distancing? Well, so are we. In fact, we've started two daily breakfast shows to help kick your day off on both sides of the Atlantic. On the Fintech Insider Breakfast Show, we chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests all dialing in remotely. It goes live on LinkedIn every morning at 8.30 a.m. BST. Just follow David Breer on LinkedIn. And if you're US-based and 8.30 BST is a bit too early, do not worry. We haven't forgotten you. We have a US option. Fintech Insider Breakfast Show US is hosted by Sam Wall and goes live at 10.30 ET. So grab a coffee and tune in. For the US show, just follow 11FS on LinkedIn to get the daily notification. And for both shows, don't forget to add your comments in the thread. And please do reach out if you have any suggestions for people we should get on the show. You can email breakfastshow at 11FS.com. All right, back to today's show, and we're going to focus on what insurers can do when it comes to innovation as a result of COVID-19. So let's stick with the positive note, people. Um, Have we seen any innovation in life insurance since March? We've obviously seen some, I mean, again, I'm sorry, I'm comparing life insurance to a lot of other industries, but as I said, this is one of a series. So we've seen quite a lot of, of speedy quick innovation in some other some other parts of the the uh, industry particularly if you look at for example gig economy insurance um, products there sort of things even things like drone insurance you know there's been a, a huge surge in the need and requirements for drones has anybody seen anything interesting or exciting in life insurance so those we've already sort of suggested maybe life insurance moves slower than even other areas of insurance um but has anybody seen anything they'd like to shout out yeah, so I think it's it's fascinating. As as mentioned, life insurance moves incredibly slowly. Um, one of the, the the small changes we've seen, and we are really really happy about this because we this is a message that we've been driving very hard for the last couple of years, is that insurance shouldn't be about compensation. It should be about risk mat- mitigation. Effectively, if you want to look at it from a technical point of view, what does that mean? It means you shouldn't only be there at the end when somebody needs you. You need to be there to help them along along the way. And it makes sense from an insurer's perspective because. Why do you want to leave your risk unknown? You'd like to help to mitigate that and to bring your own risk down. And from a life insurance perspective, that means to help people to live, to live better, to live longer. So one of the things we've seen is that one or two of the the the, the bigger insurers are now trying to play catch up within this COVID period and offer support services, whether it be access to like a virtual GP or to give people access to other you know, mental health services to help them cope with what's going on at the moment. So I think that that's a trend that will hopefully be accelerated and, and, and people can have a look at what we've done and, and to take that and go forward to say, let's not focus on death. Let's do what it says. Let's ensure people's lives. Let's help them to live. Let's give them the tools to be, you know, to be healthy, to prevent. And then if they need the support, let's give it to them before it comes you know, to become a claim. So I've definitely seen some of the insurers taking a bit more note of that over the last three months. Colleen, did you want to add to that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll make two comments. So I, th- I think we've seen life insurance um, even before try to expand from a digital perspective, even prior to to March and, and the pandemic, um, really around making that, when we talked about this, the underwriting process isn't easy. So really making the underwriting process uh, more fluid, um, having more automation, um, providing core systems that have that flexibility to help make those quick modifications uh, of those business user rules, um, simplifying those, incorporating some of those emerging technologies like um, AI and machine learning as part of the overall process, 
um, integrating through APIs, right? So I can go on about that forever. But really specifically to where we've seen kind of what I think about is like forced innovation and because there was just no way around it since the COVID, um, it's all around, you know, um, collaboration, being able to um, align technologies to uh, be able to interact with your customers better, to be to react with the broke, to interact with their brokers better. Um, things like digital signatures. Shockingly, not everyone has those today. Um, um, offering video conferencing to have conversations that need to be had around um, coverage questions or whatever it is. I talked a little bit about that survey that we did earlier. And um, one of the things that we um, identified that insurance providers are 50% behind consumer demand for online chat. Um, so simple things like taking that into your process is, is really having an impact and a benefit to, to consumers. I think it's really given us an opportunity um, to impress our on our consumers that we can make a bigger impact and we can present a better picture around who we are from a life insurance perspective if we bring on some of those technologies and make the process much simpler for insureds. So I think a lot of that applies across the insurance industry, doesn't it? Yeah, like, for sure. You know, for sure. Pe- people in insurance, you know, the, the insurance industry itself, you know, we won't we won't lie. It doesn't have a great rep, but there's a lot that insurers themselves can do to to, to improve their own reputations. And as you say, you can start by talking to your customers in the way in which they want to talk to you, and then I don't know, listening to them. Um, I quite yeah. like <laughs> Jonathan's point as well. But basically, what you're doing there, I think, Jonathan, is you're sort of adding like value added services, I suppose. So you, the product you have is the life insurance policy, and you hope you don't have to touch it, you know, for decades. But that means you can kind of forget about the policy, and that means you can kind of sort of lose touch with whoever your insurance provider is. I'm guessing the sort of things you were suggesting there actually that gives you as an insurer more regular touch points with your customers as well, um, and then maybe they feel a little bit better because it sounds like you're looking out for me. Or right, you really do care that you know I don't. When you put it at its bluntest terms, the insurer has to pay out if I die of a heart attack. They don't really want to pay out, so maybe they're going to stop me having a heart attack. But actually, you know, on, the, on from the consumer perspective, it's like, oh right, I hadn't thought about that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that's exactly right. I and mean, we talk about it as as a win-win model, and it really is really it's it's a win-win model. At the end of the day, if somebody's living a longer, healthier life, that's great for them. And for us as an insurer, that's also great because, as you said, I mean, ultimately, we don't want to pay out. We will, and of course we will if we need to, but we don't want to. So we get to you know, be better as a financial business, but we also be, get to be better as, as a business because we get to help people to live longer. And our mission is to inspire people to live their best lives every day. So we meet our mission, we better financially, and they live longer and have healthier, happier lives. So it just is a win-win. And at the end of the day, it's really surprising that most other insurers don't do this as opposed to the fact that we're doing it. It does depend, though, if you're a composite insurer or a monoline carrier, right? So if you've got a single product and the only thing that you do is this, then it's interesting. If you've got multiple products and you start moving into either funeral plans or health or whatever else, um, it does change the composition of the overall book and what you can do, do with it. So if you're nudging someone from one area of the book to another area of the book at a broader, higher level, you're not really changing much. It's almost how you can link those things together to provide a better outcome collectively. So I think to your point about innovation, it depends on if it's single product versus multi-product, but that's true in general insurance as well, Sarah, whether we've got you know business insurance versus personal insurance, people will move the things around accordingly. 
the other thing for innovation here for me is very much on just good old-fashioned operational efficiency. So back to your point about insurers and reputations or banks and, and uh, reputations, you know, there are there are many old processes that could be updated that haven't been updated. So things like death certificates have very much tr- traditionally been a physical piece of paper that would be scanned or whatever else in. So I don't know how you deal with it, Jonathan, but in many cases, these would have to be, even during the pandemic, physically captured from um, the mortuary or wherever else or the coroner to go, it's a physical death certificate. This is how it passes the way through to get things done. How we digitize that or allow for things to take place so that you don't, we've had loads of fraud stories throughout the year, that you don't end up with fraud or whatever else is really, really important, right? You know, we've actually heard from our carriers that with some of the impact that they've been having from the pandemic is, I mean, speaking of operationally, right, they're not in the office. So a lot of that paper trail that they're getting, the applications, their, you know, the check payments, all of that, you know, they haven't been able to if the process weren't digitized before, they're certainly reevaluating those processes now and trying to figure out where did we go wrong and how we can make this better um, because it was it was a challenge running to. your business working from home and not being yeah. able to go into the office where all, all your stuff is. Well, right? one, one of the ones that shocked me it was a motor insurer, not life insurance, but a very quick example was one of the motor insurers in North America was, was about to print and send out something like one and a half million checks to customers. And the only, I, I smiled at myself, my God, that's a lot of checks. <laughs> Luckily, the US is further ahead than the UK when it comes to check scanning. So they were about to send and post these physical pieces of paper out for customers, if they had the capability, to then scan on and send them in. But in many cases, you'd get a check that you couldn't do anything with because the banks are shut. I don't think, I think, just to be clear, the UK uh, is behind when it comes to mobile check scanning because we don't use checks very often. That's but very true. I, it, I know. It may be that the point you're making is that the the few the few people who do still use checks um, are, you know, various government organisations. My mother it seems to get checks on a regular basis when people are trying to pay her things, despite the fact she's got many bank accounts and knows perfectly well how to use banks, but they won't pay her that way. Um, or maybe maybe insurers. I don't know. Is it more common for, for insurers to pay out by check than it is via electronic payment? In the UK, I, I don't know the answer. I, I don't think so, but there's the age-old thing that says, you know, checks, and I'm sure there's stats on this somewhere, you can send someone a check <coughs> and a percentage that will never get cashed. So it's almost free money after six months. Don't make me tell the story again about how many checks my boyfriend keeps in a drawer from his grandmother, honestly. <laughs> poor woman, poor woman. And that's just because he's lazy. That's got nothing to do with COVID. Um, so just, you know, before we wrap up, just we've talked about some of the things that kind of, uh, I think we've sort of touched on this, but I'd, I'd like to hear your perspective, um, everybody's perspective on what you would like to see come out of this. What the, what the most important change you would like to see uh, from, from the life insurance industry as a result of the pandemic. So obviously we've touched on kind of like ways of working and then sort of customer service, but is there something profound that you think could cause a real shift here and we could end up in a situation as a result of COVID where we see the numbers of people who are protected go up. Um, is there something you think would cause that other than other than the external drivers like we're all confronting our own mortality now? Is there one thing or a major thing that you think we really need to happen now to, to cause that change in, in, in people's protection levels? Nigel, to give our guests a few minutes to think about that, do you want to go first? 
Yeah, thank, thanks for that. And um, it, it, it's a tough one. I'm not sure. Is, you know, everyone who knows me knows me. I'm a, a general insurance guy first and foremost. Um, but I think the, this whole pandemic has, to your point, allowed us to reevaluate lots of things and importantly, educate ourselves. So I think the new innovative startups, the U-Lives, the Bequest, the Dead Happies, and the many more that are emerging are going to make it easier to access, easier to buy and easier to understand which I think is what InsureTech has done, period, to the industry. I just think now the spotlight will move further and further or closer and closer to life insurance than it has done previously. Yeah, I mean, I totally would agree. I mean, I think it's it's a moment of truth for the for insurance in general. And I think from a life insurance perspective, it's we have to seize the opportunity of making a change in the industry that makes it easily accessible for people to understand and in a way that they want to get educated and they want to buy. And it's about digital processing and being able to have things online. Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Jonathan, how about you? Yeah, I think one of the amazing things that will happen now is that a lot of incumbents' excuses have been taken away for the way they've run their businesses and certain things. So, for example, a lot of underwriting historically, you know, you had to do it face-to-face, you had to have blood tests, you had to go and check your pulse and all these other wonderful things. Uh, but now if they've wanted to sell business over the last few years, they've had to find ways around it. So using data that's accessible from people's phones or having virtual GP appointments as opposed to face-to-face. So what I think that we've seen over the last while is that you can take away those excuses because they were just excuses because it was the way it was always done. And now you can push some of the innovation a lot quicker. So I think over this next year, you will see a lot more business operational improvements. And in the long term, I really do feel that insurers are moving away from compensation to actually being there for people to help. So that's my, my long-term view. Brilliant. Um, and just before we before we close off, um, is there anything that, that either you, Colleen, or, or, or Jonathan, you, your companies are working on at the moment that you know you can tell us about you know, anything exciting that's coming next for you guys? And, and perhaps that has been changed or put on hold or something by COVID-19. You know, I think any sensible business is perhaps, well, any sensible business is, is re-evaluating its, its short-term and indeed long-term plans at the moment. But um, is there anything you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, so at, at ULife, we have something incredibly exciting coming up in the next three months. So we are releasing something called the U-Screen, which is super excited. So when you're in the ULife app, you get to see a digital version of yourself. You create an avatar, and then what happens with the avatar as you now start to personalize your life insurance with us is it grows and becomes more powerful. So what we're doing is we're using um, really tried and tested game mechanics um, for the first time within the insurance and financial sector w- world. So you, I am so excited for people to start creating their avatars and then uh, seeing how they change based on the cover that they've bought. Is this is this the idea that I upload a picture of myself and depending on my lifestyle factors, I either get more wrinkles and lose my hair faster <laughs> or um, become some kind of, you know, fitness freak? Uh, that's that's very much no, 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 that, is we, that idea because we've seen that <laughs> we've seen that in health insurance is the reason I mention it. We've seen the kind of like people don't think about their future selves. So if you make them look at them, their future selves or their potential future selves, they think about it more seriously. No, not, not, not at all. We, we're not trying to create a digital version of yourself that gets you know older as, as you get old. What we're trying to do is, or what we are doing is using those amazing game mechanics that are there. So if you play any games on your phone or online <laughs> or on your PC, you know that you've got a digital version of yourself that's your idealized state that gets more powerful as you look after yourself. As, as you do the things that are correct within that world, you get more powerful. 
And we're applying that as well to, to within the life insurance industry. So as you do those behaviors, whether it be you know exercising and the things we want you to, to do to improve your longevity, and then you do the things to improve your financial well-being, your, your avatar, your character gets more powerful and gets more things. But it's not it's never going to be a, a penalization that you know you had that chocolate today, all of a sudden you're gonna see that the you know the, the, the love handles are coming on, on, on your avatar because come on, no nobody wants that. We know it's coming. And sometimes to be honest, the chocolate is good for your mental health. So yes, I don't think, yeah, at the, at the risk of giving, you know, bad advice or people shouldn't listen to me, but I think depriving yourself of things that make you feel a little bit better right now is, is not the solution. I think we can revisit that future Sarah, future Sarah's state can revisit <laughs> that. Um, Colleen, how about you? Is there anything you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, so we also just um, released our next version of our digital suite products, um, and we're really focused on um, helping carriers achieve the digital transformation across the the life insurance industry. So things that we've already talked about, like being able to um, have dynamic portals to be able to collaborate with your customers, to be able to um, ensure collaboration between your brokers and your customers, the video conferencing, um, applying simplicity operationally around check processing and um, more fluidless underwriting. So uh, we're really excited to to offer that to the industry and really hope that um, it can help the, the life insurance carriers take their products to the next level. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you so much, both of you. Um, I'm going to leave the discussion there. I think that's a, a great positive note to leave on and something exciting to look forward to for the future. Um, thank you so much to my guests for joining me and to Nigel, of course. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a, a Twitter handle, a website, a LinkedIn you'd like to share? Jonathan, shall we start with you? Yeah, absolutely. So LinkedIn ultimately is the, the best place to get hold of me where I'll be posting everything from uh, lessons I've learned about lockdown to some interesting life insurance content um, and uh, medium. So every now and then I'll put out a, a, a blog. Um, they'll usually be a little bit irreverent. So I've got things like if life insurance was a movie, these would be the posters uh, through to talking about the insurtech state or state of insurtech in memes. Um or, or a slightly more controversial one, which was people's reasons for not having life insurance are star, 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 star. Um, so, yeah, Medium and LinkedIn are going to be the best places to uh, to see my true self. That sounds great. We love irreverence around here. So um, it sounds like it will go down very, very well with our, with our listening audience. Uh, Colleen, how about you? Yes, uh, LinkedIn also. Um, lots of blog posting, uh, thought leadership out there, and then also um, Twitter. So Colleen A W is my Twitter handle. Perfect. Thank you, Nigel. How about you? Causing mayhem and havoc as always on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Um, as always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders or our 11FS LinkedIn page. That is 11 colon FS. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which you can find on Spotify and any other podcast providers. InsureTech Insider will be back very soon. And until then, stay safe and goodbye.